911, what's the nature of your emergency? Good morning, police, fire, military, and families, and to everybody who is listening in on the Tactical Living Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Walton, and this morning I am joined with not one guest, but two, and we had a little bit of technical issues this morning, but I am so glad that we were able to bring everybody in, and I have Cameron and Rodney. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. How are you? I'm good, too. Rodney, I have to ask you a question before we continue, because you had given me something that told me to call you Charles Rodney instead of Rodney. <laughs> so I just want to make sure, because that's going to confuse me. Uh, yeah, no, my my full name is Charles Rodney Scheffler. I go by my middle name. Rodney. Got it. Rodney it is then. So you guys have two completely different stories. And instead of me going over your backgrounds on my own, um, Cameron, if it's okay, I'm going to start with you. And if you could just tell us a little bit about your, your past, and then we'll kind of go into where you're at now and how you're helping people. All right. Well, thank you again for having us on. Um, love the opportunity to try to help some individuals. Uh, I was a police officer for five years in St. Louis, Missouri, and I was shot in the face during the Ferguson, Missouri protests. I, uh, after I was shot, I thought that mental wounds would heal like physical wounds, but it just didn't happen. Um, after being shot, the bullet actually was a 40 caliber full metal jacket. It entered my right cheek, uh, it passed through my face, went behind my ear, hit the back of my skull and then dropped down into my neck where it came to rest on my carotid artery and jugular. So I'm, I'm lucky to even be having this conversation. That round should have gone out of the back of my head. And so after I got shot, you know, after the initial, you know, adrenaline and everything like that, um, I figured things after some time would kind of cool down, but they didn't. I, uh, immediately following the incident, I started having terrible dreams. I mean, terrible, terrible dreams about being killed over and over and over. And uh, my days then were also saturated with flashbacks. So if I'm awake, I'm dealing with flashbacks. And a flashback with PTSD is when either the memory comes back intrusively, quickly in a moment, because you've been activated. And um, that's what was happening to me during the day. I'd have a flashback. I'd be activated. I'd act aggressive in, in, in some aspect. I would literally, my body would be getting ready for a fight that was no longer going on. So I did the old school thing. You know, I, uh, I, I thought, you know, the movies might be right. So I, you know, started drinking whiskey and thinking that it would, I would get over it kind of old school. It, it made matters worse. Um, I went on that path, uh, for about 10 months while I was also going to therapy twice a week and taking uh, medications to try to stabilize me. And at 10 months, I was informed by, by my police department that I would no longer be a police officer if I wasn't cleared in the next 30 days. I asked them in that meeting, well, what about my FMLA? Don't I get 90 days? And they said, well, that started two months ago, which is legal, but in my opinion, not as ethical as I would like it to be. So my heart was broken in that moment because I didn't know who I was anymore. You know, I'd been going through all this. I was a police officer. Um, 
you know, I believe that's who I was. And now I've been told that I'm no longer worthy of that title. So for the next two months, it, it kind of went really downhill until I got to the anniversary. And on the night of the anniversary, I was found by my wife in bed having a seizure. I had never had a seizure before. She told me she had called the ambulance. And I said, no chance I'm going anywhere with anyone. I, I was basically ready to die. I didn't care about myself. I didn't care about what happened to me. I just wanted to be left alone. I was like a dog who had been beaten. I just wanted a corner. And uh, But in the middle of me saying, I'm not going to the hospital, I had another seizure and then another seizure and then another seizure. And then an officer on scene who uh, I, I wasn't being cooperative with anyone. And this officer, he saw you know, how, how much it was hurting my wife that I was actually not complying with what was going on. And he said to me, does your wife deserve to be this scared? And I said, no. So got on the gurney, had a, had a seizure on the way out to the ambulance, seizures on the way to the hospital. My blood pressure was somewhere over like 230, 230 over 130. So they thought I was about to have a stroke. And so when I got to the hospital, they put me down. But what they realized after a CAT scan is that I was actually suffering from press syndrome. Press syndrome is when the pressure inside the cranium gets so high that it starts squeezing the skull. So I was actually having seizures. Um, so to get me through that, they, you know, they're stabilizing me. But because I had used alcohol at this point on a daily basis, almost 24 hours a day to handle myself, I went into alcohol withdrawal. And so I was in the coma. I went through alcohol withdrawal, which then led to double pneumonia and my right lung collapsed. I was on a ventilator for five weeks. Um, if anyone out there, obviously now we know about ventilators and what a, you know, it, a hard road it is you know, to even be on one. I, I was on one for five weeks and I was labeled the sickest person in the hospital and I had my last rites ordered for me. And I was in a tremendous amount of pain. I remember all my PTSD dreams while in a coma. So I was basically, in, in my mind, I was, I was trapped in hell. I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't end it. I had no control over what was going on. And I was just stuck. Pain, 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 pain. And the dreams were still there. I was dying every night, you know, or every, every dream in the coma. And then I suddenly decided I was going to give up. And so in my dream, I gave up. And suddenly the pain ended. And when the pain ended, it wasn't just that the pain ended, because that was obviously like my life was pain at that point. It ending obviously was like the, the biggest thing that could happen because suddenly I had space from this thing that was just like beating me over the head. And I was in this dark room and I look ahead of me and there's this bright light. I keep walking and suddenly I realize I'm holding someone's hands. I look up and I'm holding my grandma's hand in heaven. I look ahead of me and there's couples of people, an adult and a child, those couples walking towards that energy. I looked to my left, there was gray. I looked to my rear, pitch black, except I could see some hospital beds floating in the darkness. I turned to my grandma and I said, how is it they're so close and we don't, and they don't know we're right here? At that exact moment, I woke up to my wife slapping me in the face who had decided to pull me out of a five-week coma. Hmm. Five weeks is when your body, actually your brain forgets how to breathe and you've been forced oxygen for five weeks. So your body kind of is lazy. If I only use my right arm and not my left arm, my left arm is going to get weak. 
same thing. Your body goes, oh, well, we're being given oxygen without working for it. We don't have to breathe. So that's when you end up being plugged in for a long time. And against my parents' wishes and against even some of the doctor's wishes, she decided to pull that. And that's, that's the reason I'm sitting here talking to you right now. Uh, my wife is my angel. She had to teach me how to walk after that, all this kinds of stuff. And, uh, and, and I was a handful too, cause I, I woke up with PTSD. I woke up mad. I woke up wanting to be in control of what was going on. And it, it was a tough road. And, uh, you think I would have kind of learned my lesson at that point, but I was just living in depression and pain as soon as I woke up. And about two months later, after learning how to walk, after getting out of the, the rehab clinic for stroke patients, I went back to drinking because mm. I wanted that control. And, um, it quickly, quickly was grabbing me and taking me down. I could feel myself getting unhealthy, like daily. And it really was the classic story from one beer to a six pack, to a 12 pack, to a bottle, to all that kind of stuff. And the reason I'm sharing this is because I want people to know that it's real. This is what happens. And, um, so I was driving to my therapist one morning and I, uh, I actually had a couple of beers before I went and I was on my way. And the one thing that kind of kept me going through all this, cause I had sort of separated myself from God. I had separated myself from everyone else. It was like this ego, this ego, like no one else knows. No one understands this pain. You have the right to do this. You're going to get through this. It's fine. That voice abandoned me. And I felt more alone than I had ever felt. And I, uh, at that exact moment, I prayed and I said, Lord, I don't know what to do. All I know is I don't want to die like this because I know you gave me another chance. And it just so happened. I was on my way to my therapist's office. And when I walked in, she said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I go, well, I've been drinking again. I'm terrified. She goes, if you're going to work with me any longer, you're going to do three things. One is you're going to call your wife right now and you're going to tell her that you've been drinking. It's out of control. Next, you're going to call your parents and tell them you're on your way to their house so you don't end up going to a bar or a grocery store on the way home. And then you're also going to go to an AA meeting tonight. And I did. And that was uh, September 21st of 2016. So this past September, I hit four years of sobriety. Uh, and, that's, and that's all God. Anyways, so... In, in the moment, I really had to dig deep and I went to those AA meetings and I had to figure out a way like back from where I had been, you know, I wanted to get better. And I imagined, man, if I get rid of drinking, it's going to, everything is going to click in place. Right. I spent a year believing that and I hit my one year anniversary and I still had PTSD. Okay. So I learned through this process, kind of the things that got me through the bad moments. And that's who I'm trying to reach with my, my path now is the guy who's in the middle of the night, actually debating whether he wants to keep trying. Um, the guy or woman who feels trapped in the position they're in at work because, you know, they're having issues, you know, mentally say a, they handled a call where something very, you know, traumatic happens. You know, we handle that as a police officer all the time. Um, I'll use an example that I usually give during my classes because I teach ongoing education for law enforcement when it comes to officer-involved shootings, injured in the line of duty. One call that stuck with me, okay, as a police officer is I was called to a, uh, a suicide, okay? This is what police officers deal with on a daily basis. I'm not going to talk about who, who it was or anything like that, but this is what we do. Someone has to do it. 
So you go in there and you go to work. Okay. You have to get all the information. You have to make sure, you know, is, is this individual on prescriptions? What does the house look like? Was there a struggle? Where's the body position? All this kind of stuff. You go through all these things and it's your job to do that for that individual that's on the ground. That's your job. That's the way I made it my job. And uh, you go through it. And as a police officer, at the end of it, you code it and then you write a report and you're expected to move on. Um, I could do that most of the time. Um, you know, we're kind of like stiff upper lip guys. But when his wife w- walked up to me afterwards and asked me what she's supposed to do now while she's standing there pregnant with a four year old holding her hand. That gets you as a human being, because in that moment, I'm not just a police officer. I'm a counselor. I'm supposed to point her in the right direction. I'm supposed to give her hope. And then I'm supposed to move on. And that doesn't work. You know, we are human beings. PTSD is a human response to an extreme circumstance. So I went home that night and I cried. After I got shot, that same memory still popped up because it sunk in that much because I knew where that lady was. That was her worst moment of her entire life. And we're expected to say the right thing and be strong enough to move on to the next one and provide the same service to the next person. So um, be- prior to my injury, I didn't think PTSD, I, I, PTSD wasn't on my radar. It just wasn't on my radar. It wasn't something that was discussed. It wasn't something that you know was endorsed. You know, m- mental health wasn't even discussed as much. You know, it, it, it's just you know, an absent thing that's happening right now where officers are feeling they have to go through these situations, hold on to these intrusive memories, but not discuss it and be a strong officer. That's not, that's not a strong way to kind of like build a player on a team. You know what I mean? An officer needs to know that he is going to have the support mentally and physically after an injury. And that way he can rehab, he can process the things that are affecting him and he can move on and not only show up at work, but he can show up at home. He can show up in his life or her life and, and be there because this entire time where I was lost, I'm finally feel like I'm finally found. I'll never not have PTSD, but I'm finally found. I was just lost. And you can look at someone And they can tell you they've been through a scenario. You can look at them physically. They look fine. But you really have no idea what's going on inside and how mental trauma can really, really affect an individual, especially a frontline worker, a first responder, a police officer, a military person, anyone who's seen these things on the front line. There needs to be a process of (laughs) there needs to be a system to allow officers, if they choose to, not to be mandated, but if they choose to, to talk to someone about what happened, process it, and see how they can move on. Because we can't just make it up. My tools that I have, tools that I was given through police work, both in the academy and uh, on the streets, my tools weren't equipped for the problems I was, I was handling. Um, we're not taught about that stuff. But I believe we're going to be because of two things. One is officer retention. And I know I'm, I need to step off here for a second. Officer retention. A lot of good officers are walking away right now, whether they want, whether they feel it's the right time or not, because they don't feel appreciated. Okay. They also feel that they're expendable. 
And then when it comes to recruiting, I, if I were coming out of college right now and I owed, you know, you know, my student loans, I'm not sure I would take the leap to go into police work where you basically are set up to be the bad guy as it's portrayed, you know, throughout basically how we're being portrayed right now. But, uh, you know, the majority of officers are good officers and taking money away from officers isn't going to help putting money and investing into officers, quality officers will. And that's why I'm trying to move forward with my site, ptsdsupport.org. I'm sharing my story. So individuals have an opportunity to relate to someone who's being real about how it affected them on the streets and ultimately how to get better. I'm so thankful and proud of you, Cameron, but um, I'm going to have to politely disagree with you when you said that there are two ways that we're going to be able to get through all of this. And I'm going to add a third way. And the third way is brave individuals like you who are coming to the forefront and sharing their stories and sharing the fact that there is hope. And um, I'm definitely applauding you as much as I can for what you're doing. Uh, There's some comments in here. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Um, this hits way too close to home. Yes, absolutely. We hear a lot of a lot of stories of people who have felt that loneliness. Um, good morning, everybody. Thanks for sharing your story and glad you're doing better. Retention is a big deal in the fire service as well. Absolutely. Cameron's website, ptsdsupport.org. Absolutely. Yes, Cameron, thank you. Thank you so, so much. And I'm excited for us to be able to um, definitely dive into that more. And I'm going to guess that this isn't the first time that we'll have you on the show, but I do have this burning question because I hadn't asked this ahead of time, but Rodney, how do you know Cameron? Um, I think it was just fate that brought us together. And I was uh, bragging about how I had, or was working to try, uh, my goal, what I do is fight for, he he had mentioned that the FMLA, you know, didn't, didn't do what it needed to do. And he didn't have the tools at work, the workplace, his workplace rights. He didn't have those tools there. And my, what I'm doing is fighting for these police officers to have those workplace rights to have uh, the FMLA and everything. And he actually just asked to be my friend on Facebook and we just started talking and we just hit it off because our stories are so similar. Um, Mine is military backed. I was in the military. I was, you know, stabbed, shot, uh, blown up, hit by IED and went through, I'll keep it short, the same thing that Cameron did. Um, and just, but the, in the military, there is a lot more help there for military personnel. The problem is my brother was a Palm Beach County deputy for 31 years. And uh, on top of that, I went probably, you know, in this 30 year career, not with him because he's my brother, but I've done about 200 ride alongs and I've seen all this firsthand. And the biggest complaint was always the workplace rights, the what, what they're not, the, the officers not feeling appreciated. 
and especially recently with the with everything that's going on and the, you know the 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 public hate for officers and all this other stuff um my brother retired after 31 years and had severe PTSD and unfortunately he drank himself to death and because of my love for my brother and for police officers I in his legacy I decided that this is where I need to bring this is why I'm still here this is why I need this is what I need to do so um, a lot of people that I know know that I won uh, the state of Florida uh, the state of Florida now mandates that all agencies, police agencies, law enforcement agencies must provide EAP for the officers, allow up to 15 sessions with any kind of mental assistance and it not go on their official record. Because the biggest problem also is a lot of officers are afraid to ask because they know it's going to go on their, their, you know, their official record. And it, and it just, uh, it scares them to death because they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs for just, just for asking for help. And to, I mean, the, the, the you remember, I, I told you, uh, Ashley, that I had just won, uh, the, uh, the state of Florida and, it was like this huge victory. And now I'm just hungry. I just want to go out and, you know, I'm right now I'm working with Alabama, working with a senator to uh, meet with him, you know, and it's just, but it's baby steps. I don't want to, because as you know, and, and uh, Cameron knows, if I put too much stress on myself, it will, you know, I have my trigger points too for my PTSD. Uh, I suffer from PTSD too. So, but like Cameron, I've learned to overcome it with, with my faith and with, with help and uh, through friends and professional, but uh, you know, it's my, I just feel that my biggest help right now is to, you know, be there for law enforcement because Every law enforcement is, you know, just right now is a bullseye the minute they walk out the door, but they still put, they, they put their lives aside. They just put everything aside to protect their community, protect, you know, the public. And they're just not appreciated. And this is my way of showing appreciation and getting them help. What was the name of your brother, Rodney? My name, my brother's name was Kevin Clapp. What a, a beautiful way to be able to, to live on in his legacy. Um, we have to be strong and lean on God. Ashley, you look so cute drinking your drink, all proper and fancy looking. Thank you for all that you do off to work. Take care. Um, you know, it's amazing what you guys are doing. And the number one complaint that I get from anybody that we work with that they have come into... Um, the unexpected line of duty injury. And sometimes they've been taken out of work completely and then lose their identity. But the, the number one complaint is that 
they they're submersed in this brother and sisterhood when they are working in police and fire in particular, and then they get injured. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, where does the family go? And they don't have that support and those resources that they thought that they would. You assume that that exists. And what you guys are doing is you're bringing some light to the fact that no, it, it doesn't exist to the extent that you think it does. And even more so there's additional predecessors that need to be taken place when we have somebody who's training and working in this line of duty so that if something like this does happen, they're prepared for it. Um, and, and I love what you guys are doing. I think it is super important. And the mission and the the way that you two somehow came to align with one another and then how aligned your, your mission is going forward. What is it that, and Cameron, I'll start with you, that you're looking to do if someone is listening to this right now and what you're saying has resonated with them, what would be the next step? Well, the main purpose right now is to supply hope for those who are suffering in silence. I mean, that that's the overall mission. Um, and beyond that, it's, it's making sure that guys in law enforcement and women in law enforcement just have the tools that they should rightfully be given. Um, a lot of times when you get people with PTSD together, I noticed this, is immediately you start talking about your story. And everyone's kind of roaring, they're talking about this, and they talk about what happened with their department and BS this and BS that and BS that. But we never get to the conversation about getting better. We never get to the conversation about trying therapy. And in therapy, using EMDR, which I've been doing for about three years now, which has helped me dramatically. Um, if you want to look at my site, EMDR is on there, and I can even put some more. But we need to stop talking about the pain we're in because we're obviously in that moment expressing that we're stressed. We are when we're having that conversation with our brothers and being like, ah, I'm stressed. You know, we never get to the resolution. We never get to the way to get better. Uh, now, back to what you were saying about, you know, like the, the blue line and everything like that. I've thought about that so much. You know what I mean? Like what happened? Like, where's the blue line? We talk about it at the front end. Where is it on the back end kind of deal? And what I had to remember is that the brotherhood is actually never mentioned on the paperwork. That's not meant to sound bad. It's really not. But at the end of the day, I had to remind myself that I had taken a job which did expose me to outside threats. I assumed that those outside threats and how it would affect me would be handled by myself and the department. But I found out through this process that each individual's mental health, like it or not, is actually our own responsibility. Because I'm not gonna start getting better talking about wanting to get better. I'm not gonna get better talking to people who want me to get better. I'm only gonna get better if I start taking the steps towards getting better, which is intimidating, it's scary. There's a lot of trial and error. And at the same time, you're going through PTSD, which is basically sending you through rages and then depression. Because you rage, you basically get into fight or flight, you, you know, you're ready for a fight physically that's not even going on anymore. And you re react, say, by a person cuts you off, you charge them down. You know, you get right behind them. I'm going to tell this person they're the worst driver. And all of a sudden, it's a grandma driving the car. And you just feel terrible about yourself and you collapse. And you're constantly feeling like you have to pick yourself up and, you know, coach yourself back in it. And, and, and at the end of the day, 
you know, I had to remember if I, if I could say anything that sticks out that my mental health as a police officer was always my responsibility. When you had said the brotherhood is never mentioned in the paperwork, I had to write that down. That is probably the best thing that I have heard in, in such a long time. And I know, Cameron, you have your website and there's so much information as you listen to this. If you guys want to go to PTSDsupport.org, um, what Cameron has put on there is not only a more detailed backstory of you, you know his history and his his evolution, but he's also um, wrapping up a book. And there, there's so much on there that is of value. So I encourage you to go and check that out. And Rodney, I'm just curious for the sake of anybody who wants to get involved in what I would say politically, um, in terms of being able to take this movement on and stretch it across all 50 states, how can they contact you and, and become a part of that? Well, uh, my information is going to be uh, at you know, added to the, uh, the PTSD.org. Um, we're working on that right now uh, to make it so that I am more accessible on my part, you know, for the uh, workplace rights. Um, the, the whole idea is what brought us together is the whole package. You know, I'm bringing it together to help, you know, at work to help, you know, before to help police officers be able to ask, you know, to, to go beyond the brotherhood and the sisterhood to to be able to have those tools at work. And Cameron is on the on the the back, you know, the the latter side of it, where he is actually teaching how to deal with once you know in the situation where they have the PTSD. And but at the same time, we want to give them the police officers the right to have the tools provided by uh, an employer that expects them to handle this on their own. And uh, we just want people to know that there is hope there. You know, we want police officers, law enforcement officers to please know that there is people like myself and Cameron out there fighting for them you know we love law enforcement i love my i i've dealt with it my whole life my i i watched my brother go from my strongest to be in my rock to somebody that i can lean on to dwindle down and and and, and die in front of my face so you know it's my goal to not let that happen hopefully to other people. And if I can save one life, it makes it all worth it. I, real quick, I actually had a, I was in Palm Beach County recently back home and I had an officer recognize me and he came up and he hugged me and cried on my shoulder and thanked me because now he had already had two sessions and, and was getting help you know, courtesy of the department. And it, it just, uh, it just made me want to fight that much harder for, you know, their rights. And um, now that we're aligned and, you know, it's going to be baby steps, but it's going to get bigger and our, we're, our fight is going to get stronger. 
Yeah, and it already is. And Rodney Cameron, I not only thank you for your service, but I thank you for your continued service. And I look forward to everything that you guys are going to do in the future. And I am just so thankful for what you're doing right now. And um, thank you so much for spending this morning with me. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much.